We are today continuing in part two of our series, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. And for those of you who were unable to attend last Sunday, we are going to be continuing along in the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week, one of the things that we draw, uh, drew attention to is the fact that the Holy Spirit is not just the power of God or, or a presence emanating from God, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of God. He is the person of the Holy Spirit. He is God with us and God in us. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is very personal for each person. Uh, one of the things that is often uh, misunderstood with the work of the Holy Spirit is the nature of it is personal to each person. And so we tend to take one person's experience as the way it has to work for everyone. And yet the work of the Holy Spirit is personalized. The Lord knows each one of our our personalities, he knows our thought patterns, he knows the way that he has made us. And so often the Holy Spirit's work can be different in your life than it can be in mine. And so we must be careful not to judge one person and how the Spirit works in them, that it therefore must be the same in my life. And so we will uh, be mindful of that as we go through this series, and even as I share examples from my own life, I want to just be careful that you wouldn't presume that simply because the Spirit's worked in my life in one manner, that therefore he must work the same way in your life. The Lord works personally in each one of our lives, and so let's bear that in mind as we continue in our series this morning. Would you bow with me and let's pray as we enter God's word. Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are very real and you are very personal. You are that indwelling of the mighty God within each one who believes in you, Jesus Christ, through faith. Thank you that it is by your presence that, as we just mentioned, our hearts are washed clean, that our sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so we thank you, Lord, that as you come to indwell, you don't just come to to take up uh, a spot and then do nothing further. No, you come to indwell and to empower for transformation to not only fill us so that we're saved, but to fill us so that we can serve and be a life-giving flow of your power into the lives of others around us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for enlightenment this morning. We ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would help us to set aside whatever distracted thoughts we've carried with us this morning. Whatever we have going on this afternoon, wherever we're going for lunch, just help us to set those thoughts aside and to receive what you have for us now. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and translate it, Lord, for our individual lives according to your will. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing with you an account written by Peter Marshall that he named the Keeper of the Springs. Once upon a time, a certain town grew up at the foot of a mountain range. It was sheltered in the lee of the protecting heights so that the wind that shuddered at the doors and flung handfuls of sleet against the window panes was a wind whose fury was mostly spent. High up in the hills, a strange and quiet forest dweller took it upon himself to be the keeper of the springs. He patrolled the hills and wherever he found a spring, he cleaned its brown pool of silt and fallen leaves of mud and mold, and he took away from the spring all foreign matter, so that the water which bubbled up through the sand ran down clean and cold and pure. The water leaped sparkling over rocks and dropped joyously into crystal cascades until, swollen by other streams, it became a river of life to the busy town down below. 
Mill wheels whirled by its rush. Gardens were refreshed by its waters. Fountains threw it in the air like diamonds. Swans sailed on its surface, and children laughed as they played on its banks and swam in its cool waters. But the city council was a group of hard-headed, hard-boiled businessmen. They scanned the civic budget one day and found in it the salary of the keeper of the springs. Said the keeper of the purse, Why should we pay this romance ranger? We never see him. He is not necessary to our town's life or work. If we build a reservoir just above the town, we can dispense of his services and save his salary. And so therefore, the city council voted to disperse with this unnecessary cost of the keeper of the springs, and so they built a cement reservoir instead. The keeper of the springs no longer visited the brown pools. He simply watched from the heights while they built the reservoir. When it was finished, it soon filled up with water, to be sure. But the water did not seem to be the same. It did not seem to be as clean, and as green scum soon befouled its stagnant surface, it only continued to get worse. There were constant troubles with the delicate machinery of the mills, for it was often clogged with slime. The swans found another home very soon above the town. Finally, an epidemic raged, and the clammy yellow fingers of sickness reached into every home, into every street and lane. The city council met again. Sorrowfully, it faced the city's plight, and frankly, it acknowledged the mistake of the dismissal of the keeper of the springs. They sought him out of his hermit hut high in the hills. They begged him to return to his former labor, and gladly he agreed, and he began once more to make his rounds. It was not long until pure water once again came down the mountain. It sparkled in the clean reservoir. Mill wheels turned again as of old, stenches disappeared, sickness waned, and the children once again played and laughed in the sun. And even the swans returned. Now just as that town required a constant source of fresh flowing water from a carefully maintained spring, so too our spiritual lives require a constant source of fresh flowing water, living water, from a carefully maintained source that bubbles up within our souls. Now I want to ask you, who here remembers the kids' song, Spring Up a Well? Who here remembers the camp song, Spring Up a Well? Anyone? Okay, I'm seeing some hands. You remember how it went? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read the words for you. It went, um, I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see, opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And then you would say, Spring Up a Well, and everyone would be sitting, and you'd jump up and you'd say, Spring Up a Well. Within my soul, spring up, O well, and make me whole. Spring up, O well, and give to me that life abundantly. Now, for a children's song, this is rich theology. To be asking the Lord to spring up, O well, within my soul. This is, this is a, a huge request. We're asking the Lord to do something transformational and life-giving within each one of us. And I'm not going to ask you to sing this morning. Maybe we'll do it for a closing song. I'm not sure if it's in the songbook or not. Spring up a well. And I remember, who here remembers some of the different things you do for actions? We do tidal wave, splish, splash. What are some of the other ones you remember? Anyone? Does anyone remember super soaker? 
That was one of the camp favorites. I, I don't know if that was in Sunday school or not. All of these things are expressions, however, of the abundance of the Lord's supply. A tidal wave is not short in supply of water, is it? It, it is all about this overflow. There is an excess of the Lord's supply. When we ask him to, to spring up within us, he's not just going to give us a little trickle. He wants to flood our souls with life-giving water. And so let me ask you today, what or who is the wellspring of your life? What is bubbling up from within your soul today? Now before you answer that question, let's turn to God's word, John chapter 7. I would ask you to turn there with me this morning. In John chapter 7, here we find the account that Reuben read for us in a couple of translations, gives us a great insight into the story we're going to focus on, but I want to give you a little bit of context of Jesus' statement in John chapter 7. We're going to begin looking at verse 1 so that we get a little bit of background for this statement of Jesus. Verse 1 we read, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now this is an interesting glimpse into the personal family life of Jesus. Who here ever had brothers egg them on? Anyone? <laughs> no one? Am I the only one with brothers? Come on, if you had a brother, you've had a brother egg you on. I'm sorry, but you have. Brothers are good at egging their siblings on. And here we see Jesus was no exception. His own brothers are egging him on. Don't you just love that? It says he was tempted like us in every way. And here's a perfect example. How would he respond to his brothers trying to give him the gears? They're basically saying to Jesus, you've been doing all these mighty works. Why are you doing them in secret? Show off. Even they, it says, did not yet believe in him. And so they're egging him on. Of course, Jesus does not give in to their provocations. And he doesn't go with them. But then we read this in verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, Jesus went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, it's hard to imagine Jesus being sneaky like this, as though, you know, he could just do something like this and blend into the crowd. But that's exactly what he does here. His brothers have gone on up ahead, and he decides a few days later, I'm going to go as well, but I'm going to go discreetly so that no one knows that I'm here. He goes on the sly. But of course, it doesn't take long until his cover is blown. Verse 12, we read this. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Don't you love that? Widespread whispering. It's widespread. Everyone's like, I got a secret. Yeah, you and everyone else have the same secret. This was the worst, best-kept secret in town. Jesus is at the festival. But everyone's, don't tell anyone, but Jesus is here. Widespread whispering. I love that phrase. Then we read this in verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts 
and begin to teach. Now this is a seven-day festival. So halfway through the third or the fourth day, Jesus decides that while everyone knows I'm here anyways, I'm now going up to the temple courts and beginning to teach. However, Jesus' trip to the temple was far from happenstance. It was deliberate and highly symbolic to what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. Now, various biblical scholars, including Gary Burge, explain the following in regards to the the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, as it is also known. Now, this was one of the most popular Jewish religious festivals. It was rich in symbolism. Each day of the Feast of Booths, or or, or, Tabernacles, included a water ceremony in which a procession of priests would descend to the south border of the city of Jerusalem. They would go down to the Gehon Spring. Now, the Gehon Spring, the name means gushing forth. We we didn't sing the song, but we talked about the song, Spring Up a Well. One One of the ones that kids will sometimes do is gush, 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 gush. Think of water gushing, gushing forth. This is the name of the Gehon Spring, gushing forth. Now, does it surprise you that the Gehon Spring, gushing forth, was and still is to this day the primary water source for the city of Jerusalem? And its water directly flows into the pool of Siloam, which we also know from other miracles that Jesus performed. So this is very symbolic. It is the life-giving water source for the city. They descend to this water source, and there at the Cajon Spring, a priest fills a golden pitcher with water. And as he's doing this, a choir will chant in unison, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would repeat this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. As this ceremony is taking place, the water is then carried back up the hill to the water gate. And the crowds would follow behind carrying a tree branch in their right hand, in memory of the desert booths that they lived in, in the wilderness. And in the left hand, they would carry a citrus branch in memory of the harvest that the Lord had given them, the land flowing with milk and honey. These were constant reminders to them. And so in the right hand, they wave this branch. In the left hand, they wave the other branch. And they would shake these and they would sing Psalm 113, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So just imagine this procession, the throngs of people following behind as this pitcher of water is being carried up to the temple. Finally, when the procession arrives at the temple, the priest would then climb the altar steps and there would be the altar. And all the people would surround the altar And in a symbolic moment, the priest would take that golden pitcher of water and he would pour the water over the altar while the crowd circled him and continued to sing. They would do this every single day, once a day, for the first six days of the festival. Then on the seventh and final or greatest day of the festival, this procession would take place seven times on the final day. Seven times. Does that seem symbolic to you? The number seven. It is everywhere throughout Scripture. We're even reminded that Jericho marched around, pardon me, Jericho, Joshua marched around Jericho. How many times? Seven times. And of course, the last time they marched around seven times. And then the walls fall down. So here we see a very symbolic thing happening. The last day, seven times they do this. And the final time is where we see the setting of what Jesus has said. Now, this ceremony was seen by the Jews on multiple levels. 
First, it was seen from a very basic level of God provided rain. Without rain, nothing can grow. They also saw it in the form of his deliverance through the waters of the Red Sea, when the waters had parted and they had walked through in safety. They also saw this ceremony in regards of God's promise of future blessing for the nation. The prophets Zechariah and Ezekiel both had visions of rivers of water flowing from the temple in a miraculous display of God's blessing. Ezekiel 47 verse 1 says this, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. One of the other synonyms of the word coming out is gushing forth. Again, we have this idea of water gushing. And here uh, Zechariah has this vision of living water gushing out from the temple. Then Zechariah in 14 verse 8 had this vision. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. And in an oft drought-stricken land, imagine living water flowing forth. This was a spectacular vision of life. And the people of God latched onto this and were reminded of this every time they celebrated this festival. And so against this backdrop, against this symbolic outpouring of water seven times, on the seventh and greatest day of the feast, we read, John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. This is what we read. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now talk about a powerful statement. No more sneaking around, no more keeping a low profile. Here, as a completely uninvited preacher, Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Now the word cries, in this context, the way it's translated, could be understood clearly as shouted loudly or emphatically, so that all might hear him and heed This was no whisper in the crowd. Jesus was getting everyone's attention. And what Jesus so loudly and so publicly proclaimed that day was an invitation and a promise. An invitation and a promise. Here's the invitation. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you're thirsty. There is a prerequisite to this invitation. What is it? What is the prerequisite to this invitation? If, if you're thirsty. You see, the prerequisite to receive Jesus' invitation is to become aware of our thirst. To become aware of the need within our souls. If you're thirsty. You see, Jesus called people to recognize that we have a thirst in our souls that is far greater than a physical thirst. During the liberation of Palestine in World War I, A combined force of British, Australian, and New Zealand soldiers were closely pursuing the Turks as they retreated from the desert. As the Allied forces moved northward past Beersheba, they began to outdistance their water-carrying camel train. When the water ran out, their mouths quickly began to go dry. Their heads ached, and they became dizzy and began to faint. Eyes became bloodshot, lips swelled and turned purple, and delusions became common. They knew that if they did not make it to the wells of Sharia by nightfall, thousands of them would die, as hundreds had already done along the way. 
exhausted and literally fighting for their lives, with no water, they managed to drive the Turks from Sharia. But then, as water was slowly dis- distributed from the great stone sisters, though the more able-bodied men could have just pushed everyone aside and dove straight in, their officers ordered them to stand at attention so that the wounded and the weak could drink first. It was another four hours before the last man received his drink of that precious life-giving water. During that time, the men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water to stare at what had been their soul-consuming passion for agonizing days in the desert. And one of the officers who was present that day, one of the last to drink of the life-giving water, said this, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Shreya Wells that day. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, and for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would our lives be? So let me ask you today, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Are you aware of a thirst within your soul far greater than even the physical thirst that those soldiers experienced that day? Is your soul crying out for more life than what you're currently experiencing? You know, chances are you've already experimented with trying to satisfy that inner thirst with other things. We've all done it. I have as well. We try to satisfy it with things that aren't necessarily bad, things that can be good, but in and of themselves cannot meet that deepest need. We try to fill it with things like marriage, family, sex, money, fame, travel, athletic, academic, or career achievements. And while some of these things on their own aren't bad things, none of them can completely satisfy our deepest longings. Any satisfaction or significance we gain is temporary, and it quickly fades away, becoming a vague memory, if remembered at all. Yes, certainly, you will experience happy events along the way, unexpected moments when you just experience pure delight, and you say, this is just life at its best. If everything could just stay exactly how it is right now, life would be awesome. But that moment is fleeting, isn't it? We can't go back in time to relive that moment, recapture the sensation. And again, our souls cry out, water, I need something more. The reality is that we have a thirst that only one source can quench. We are thirsty people. We long for deeper satisfaction than what this world can offer. The kind that thrills our soul and sets our hearts and minds at peace, true peace. Deep in our souls, down at our core, the very bottom, we desperately want something that we know we don't have and we can't attain. Whether we realize it or not, our souls are thirsting for God. Every desire, every aspiration, every longing of our nature is nothing less than a yearning for God. We were born out of and for his love to be enjoyed in a personal relationship with him. And so our souls will not be satisfied by any substitute. God is the only one who can quench that deepest thirst of your soul. 
And so if today you're sitting here and you find yourself deep within you restless, deep within you thirsting for something more in this life, respond to Jesus' invitation. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. That is the invitation. Now here is the promise. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, returning momentarily to the temple courtyard that day, can you just imagine Jesus' brothers at that moment? Now, it's possible that because Jesus had been discreet up until that point, it's possible that they weren't even aware of his presence yet. And suddenly, there he is, perhaps taking a step up on one of the high places around the temple courtyard. But whatever the case is, Jesus gets the entire crowd's attention, and he's hollering at the top of his lungs, making this outrageous claim. Just imagine what his brothers must have been thinking. Who is he to make such a claim? Who is he to claim that if you believe in him, living water will flow out of you? But perhaps secretly they wondered, what did it mean? How exactly do streams of living water flow out of someone's life? Clearly, Jesus wasn't meaning literal water. And John adds an editor's explanation for our benefit here in verse 39. His brothers didn't receive this that day, by the way. This is something John added later on, interpreted by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus meant, verse 39. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now here we come again to the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. He is the source, the wellspring of living water within the soul. And it is through belief in Jesus, when we receive his invitation, that the Spirit comes to live within our souls. He pours in like rain from heaven, but like rain... He does not come just to relieve our personal thirst. He comes to flow out of us in order to give living water to others as well. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul writes this, And do not be drunk with wine in where there is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here Paul alludes to the fact that many people rely on getting drunk to feel fulfilled. This is the way that they are trying to satisfy that inner thirst of their souls. If I can just enjoy this for a moment, I'll get intoxicated, I'll feel okay for a moment. Maybe it satisfies for the time that you go through that period of drunkenness. But when it's all over, we know that it's not going to continue. If anything, you're going to have a hangover, you're gonna, your head's going to feel terrible, you might be throwing up, whatever the case is. It's not good. It's temporary. Even if you feel good in the moment, it's not going to last. He's alluding to that fact, that people do this. But then he points to the reality that for the follower of Christ, or anyone, there can be only one source of true fulfillment. It's not by wine. It is by the Holy Spirit filling up our lives with his presence. However, his filling is not static. It's not a one-time event where he just tops us up and that's it for the rest of our lives. No, Jesus describes him as a stream of living water. A stream flows. There is a source and it flows downward. There is a flow. He fills us up and then he flows out. There's another great kid song that goes, Fill up my cup, 
Anyone know this one? Fill up my cup, fill up my cup, let it. Anyone? I see someone mouthing overflow. Man, we, we need to get a little more enthusiasm going here. All right, let, let's try this together. Here we go. Fill up my cup. You got to repeat that. Fill up my cup. Let it. There we go. I at least got you talking. That's good. I talk up here. I know you're, you're supposed to be listening. That's good, too. If you weren't listening, now you are. All right, let's keep going. He, he fills up our cup. He fills up our lives, not just for our personal satisfaction. No, he fills up to overflow. It is intended to give life to others as well. There's a good description of what the Holy Spirit does for each of us is this idea of a stream flowing and giving life. But in order to do that, we have to allow him to do that. And the only way that we can allow his living water to flow out of our lives is to give him an outlet through our service to God and to others. Unfortunately, many followers of Christ fail to do this. They recognize that they need the Holy Spirit to come in to to quench that thirst that only he can satisfy. But then they think that this is it. This is just for them and for no one else. And so they ask him to pour in But then they dam off the outlet, and there is no flow. And when there is no flow, what happens? What happened in the original story? When there is no flow, things stagnate. Things stagnate. They begin to die and decay. And the the initial life that was there begins to diminish. And so there needs to be a flow. If there is no flow, it stagnates, and we end up with Clarny Lake. (laughs) Sorry, too close to home? Worse yet, with no outlet, it becomes the Dead Sea. It's a classic example. The Dead Sea is so salty that it contains no fish or plant life. I I wish I had thought of having a picture to show you of me when we actually floated in the Dead Sea. It's quite the sensation. And the reason we can actually float in the Dead Sea is that there are no outlets because a great volume of water is pouring into this depression from the Jordan River... All of the salt, all of the the nutrients, everything is filling in, but nothing is being flushed out. Inlets plus no outlets equals a dead sea. Nothing can live in it. Nothing can grow in it. There are no fish in the dead sea. The, The birds do not land on its water. It is really and truly dead. And this law of nature may also be applied to the child of God. And it explains why many believers are unfruitful and lack spiritual vitality. You see, it's possible for someone to attend church, listen to religious broadcasts religiously, study the scriptures and take in the word as it is preached from the pulpit, and yet be lifeless and unproductive in their life for the Lord. And such individuals are like the Dead Sea. They have inlets, but no outlets. You see, to be vibrant and useful believers to the Lord, we must not only take in all that we can, we must also give out in service to the Lord and to others. We must have outlets for the Spirit to flow out of our lives. As Jesus said, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Now, an example for me as a preacher Obviously, not everyone is called to be a preacher, but for myself, one of the unique blessings that I receive from the Lord is the ability to have this outlet, that when I study the Word, I have an outlet to preach it. And so, one of the the unique moments that any preacher, I'm sure, uh, 
Mr. Falk could attest to this, is when the Lord blesses you or, or impresses you with a word. And it's not always an easy word. Sometimes it's a difficult word. And yet you know that this is what the Lord has called you to speak forth. And so when I speak it forth, and when I walk off the platform, I have this sense of the Lord saying, you've done what I've asked you to do. Well done. That's it. I can't change anyone's minds. I can't change anyone's hearts. All I can do is be obedient to speak forth what God has asked me to speak forth. And when I do that, there's this sense of satisfaction that only the Lord can give. It it comes from no one saying, attaboy, you did a good job. No, it's from the Lord himself. And for me, that is where I feel the Lord replenishing my spirit. I poured out, and now I know that next week when I have to preach again, he's going to pour back in. Because if, if I just gave everything I had and he didn't pour back in, there'd be nothing to give next week. I know people have often asked me many times when I've ended up having two or three or sometimes even four in a single week, how do you keep coming up with it all? And I just say, well, the Lord keeps pouring it in. So long as I do my part to be in prayer, to be in the word, the Lord does his thing. He pours in as he asks me to pour out. Now, of course, not everyone is called to be a preacher. Some of you will have very different outlets. But whatever your outlet is, wherever God has given you an ability to serve, whether that's personally one-to-one with people, whether that's in a Sunday school class, wherever you are, when you pour out, I'm sure that many of you here can identify with that satisfaction that comes from the Lord himself when he says, you've done what I've asked you to do, and I'm going to pour back in to replenish what you've poured out of you. This is the Lord's blessing for service. So let me just ask you, what area of service has the Spirit of God gifted you for? If you don't know that, next next Sunday we're going to be focusing on the gifts of the Spirit. But find what that is. Allow the Lord to pour into you, but also give back. Because if we don't recognize that, we will stagnate. We will stagnate just like the Dead Sea. And it will affect all areas of your life. Because when we come to church, we so often are coming here to say, I want to receive, I want to receive. But don't just come to church in receiving mode, come to church in giving mode. This is a place to not only receive, but to give in your service to the Lord and in worship to Him. So have an outlet. Remove the dam from your life so that the Lord may flow through. And there we find the Lord will refresh us like a a fountain. And indwelt by the Holy Spirit, We will have that water of life that will channel into us satisfying our thirst and also flowing over into the lives of others. But we cannot give what we do not have. We must each personally receive Jesus' invitation. We must recognize our thirst, the one that only he can quench, receive his invitation, and then find out that his promise is true. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. There's no maybe, there's no perhaps it will flow. Jesus says it will flow from within him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to receive this invitation for the first time. Perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize for the first time the if applies to you. If you're thirsty and you recognize my soul is thirsting for more more than what I have right now. I need something more. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to receive that invitation for the thousandth time. For no matter how long you follow Christ, the day will never come where you don't need the living water that only he can provide.
And so whatever place you're in, receive that invitation. Seek him daily. Drink long and often of his word. Spend time in prayer with him. And then seek ways to serve him by serving others. And if you do, you will discover that his promise is true. And not only will your soul be satisfied, but you will overflow to the blessing of others as well. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God. That, Lord, you have not made the way of salvation complicated. No, you have made it plain and easy that even any child can enter into. And, Lord Jesus, you gave a simple invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who recognizes that thirst is within them, that if applies to them, that their soul is longing for more than what they've experienced in this life, I pray that they would recognize that only you can satisfy it, and that by belief in you, Lord Jesus, they would come to a place of faith, that you, Holy Spirit, would pour into their lives, wash away their sin, and that you would then begin to flow out of their lives as living water, giving nourishment to their souls that would satisfy in a deeper way than anything else can, and that it would also give life to others. This is your design, this is your will for each one of our lives and for this church body. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, have your way here. May this church and each one of our lives individually be a conduit for the life-giving water of your Spirit. Bless us now as we go, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.